0: Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians 3, 16 through 17 over you. listening to the Dayton Women in the Word summer study series through the book of Hosea. Over the next eight weeks, our podcast episodes will consist of recordings of our content time each week during the study. Our prayer is that as Hosea 6 says, that our listeners and those who are following along either live or from afar, that you will be inspired and encouraged to return to the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth.
1: Giving any announcements, any language announcements tonight, so that's good. We're using regular language. It's a thumbs up for me. Tonight, we're um, just a quick overview. Um, we've got a couple of sections tonight. Uh, chapter 4, God brings a case against Israel. And then, um, chapter 5, the first seven verses, God proclaims the guilty verdict. Um, 5, 8 through 14, God sounds the alarm, and 5:15 through 6, 3, return to the Lord and live. And then, of course, we'll finish up with homework. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember we finished up Hosea 1 through 3. That's the story of Hosea and Gomer's life. Now, this week, we're jumping into the remaining 11 chapters of the book. And those chapters are going to draw out all the overarching themes of the first three chapters in greater detail, which um, if you did your reading this week, you will know. But chapter 4 is where scholars and theologians begin to disagree about the structure and the pattern of Hosea. Some see a clearer pattern than others. The language is a little disjointed and chaotic, and Hosea seems to jump from thought to thought all around. And it can be challenging to read, but the style fits the chaotic situation that it addresses. I want to say all this just to encourage you guys to stick with your reading, lean into the questions that you have, and explore what God might be saying to the Israelites and what he might be saying to you. So, don't be discouraged if you are confused. Confusion is normal. I get confused when I read. We all do. On our own strength, we can't understand anything that God is saying, but we aren't alone. That goes for all of us. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text and speak to us through it. So, tonight it may seem like I'm going all over the place, but stick with me. Don't lose heart. Our helper is ever near, and so let's pray now together for our helper to help. Lord, come be in this place with us tonight. We uh, invite you here. We know that you are here, and we say that we're glad to be in your presence tonight. Holy Spirit, I say, um, just come and help us, help us to understand what you have for us in these verses, in these chapters, Father of Hosea, and um, we just, I, I pray that you would help us each just to take something, Holy Spirit, speak some, um, something to each woman, something um, specific to their life, God, I pray that these words would be your words spoken through me, nothing of my own, but all um, from you. Father, and um, we say it's a gift to be able to gather here tonight. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for being a God um, who is worthy of us coming to be with, um, to returning, to to obeying, to delighting in God. You are worth it. You are worthy. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay. So we are going to start chapter four. God's case against Israel. So the Lord is bringing a legal case against Israel. And what he does first is share his grounds for the case. So let's read chapter 4 of Hosea, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So God's grounds for his case against Israel are no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God, and these various ways that they're breaking the covenant. Swearing, lying, stealing, murder, adultery, bloodshed. Sin is rampant. Sin is overflowing Jeremiah 4.22 sums it up this way. My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. Sounds like the Israelites to me. What we find on this list here are all the ways Israel's broken the covenant. There's a blatant disregard here for God's law. And these are all the things that matter most to God, faithfulness, love, knowledge of himself. If you remember last week, these are all things that God promised to bring into his marriage with Israel. So Israel is lacking in all the things that matter most to God. And you know what? So are we. We are lacking in belief. We're lacking in love and faithfulness to God. And most most of us, if we're honest, we give very little of our time and energy to knowing God. We make promises we can't keep. We do things in the name of Jesus that he wouldn't approve of. We lie, we murder, and cheat in our hearts and minds. And we break all the good boundaries that God puts around us. It is really easy for us to take a self-righteous attitude toward the Israelites and to judge them. It's really easy to look at them and say, I would never, I would never desert God. I would never worship a metal image I would never sacrifice my baby. I would never cheat on my husband. But I'm going to keep reminding you that this is who we are apart from Christ. We do leave God. We do disobey him. This is our natural state. So let's fight the urge together tonight to look at these people with a judgmental eye. And let's learn from them instead. So moving on to verse 3. Verse 3 says, Therefore the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So God's telling us what's happened as a result of all of this faithless activity. The land is mourning. All creation is negatively affected by sin. Many of the prophets talk about this. They talk about creation in mourning. Um, Isaiah says, the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. Jeremiah says, for this earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. And Joel says, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. So the land is in mourning, but what else? All who dwell in the land languish. This word languish was weird to me, so I looked it up. It means (laughs) to be weak, to droop, to be exhausted, or to grow feeble. So that's happening to all who dwell in the land. So that includes people, animals, birds, fish. Every created thing feels the weight of sin. And this is what Paul is echoing in, in Romans 8:22. He tells us, creation is groaning, and creation is still groaning. Only when Jesus returns is creation going to be free from bondage and able to flourish in fullness. And this is the state of affairs. Why? Because of the sins of the people. Always back to the sins of the people. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Who is responsible? the people. I'm going to read to you verses 4 through 11. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. That's Israel. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. So who's responsible? The priests. God is holding the priests responsible and tells them, don't argue with me or try to justify the actions of the people. Verse 6 says the priests rejected knowledge. And this destroyed the people because the priests failed to teach them the truth. And this was obvious by their blatant rebellion. And that causes God to reject them in their roles as priests. Jesus says in Matthew 15:14, "If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit." The priests were not following God, and so the people were not following God. Everybody's in the pit. And God says here the prophets will also stumble. They and the priests have both forgotten the law, and so He'll forget their children and destroy Mother Israel. All that means is that God is not going to be with the next generation of priests, and he's talking about the coming destruction of the northern kingdom. What's most clear here is that lack of knowledge of God destroys us. When we don't know him, we bring ruin on ourselves and others with our reckless behavior and our idolatrous nature. There are painful consequences when we reject and forget the law of God. Proverbs 1, 29 through through 33 says this. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Now look at verse 7. The basic thing here is more priests, more sin. Sin spreads like a disease, and it spreads quickly through families. The sins of the priests pass on to their sons. More priests, more sin. Verse 8 says, specifically, the priests feed on the sin of the people. They have an increasing appetite for sin. Now, what does that mean? This is figurative language, and if we don't stop and look into it a little bit, we can miss it. If you go back to Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 6, 25 and 26, tells us that the priests were allowed to eat a portion of the sin offering that was presented to the Lord. So that means that if people, Israelites, were sinning more, the priests were eating more. They were actually benefiting from the growing sin of the people. And perhaps that led them to go a little light on teaching the law. But this was an outrageous thing for God's holy priests to do. So what's God's response here to this overgrowth of sin? He gives us his verdict. It's coming. He says he's going to take away their position as priests. That's their punishment. Their glory... Some translations say their glory was their high position, their influence in society. So God's going to turn that glory into a source of shame for them. I want to stop here. Let's put ourselves into the story a little bit. What are the things in our lives that we think of as our glory, our crowning glory, our finest accomplishments? What do we glory in? Maybe... You're tempted to glory in your position at your job, or maybe you're standing as the favorite or the most successful or most responsible child among the siblings in your family, or maybe you're tempted to glory in how clean your house is, or how well-behaved your kids are in front of other people or maybe you're tempted just to glory in your own accomplishments or the accomplishments of your children, or. Maybe you're tempted to glory in your wardrobe, or your outer beauty, or some other aspect of your lifestyle. I don't know what it is for you, but the question is for us, do we glory in our Redeemer, or do we glory in ourselves? And if we find ourselves glorying too much in something other than God himself, we are in danger. We are in danger of idol worship. We're in danger of hurting other people. And we are in danger of that thing that we're glorying in being taken away from us. So God says, he will remove the priests from their positions. What else? He says he's going to punish the people just like he punishes them. And we hit on this a little bit already, but here's how Isaiah puts it. He says, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. What we're getting at here is that there are going to be no exemptions. Everyone's going to bear the consequences for the spread of sin. The high social status of the priest isn't going to protect them. The priests are going to bear the responsibility for the people. And because they do, that punishment spreads to everyone. Now we see in the text the punishment is both, both based in behavior. Verse 9 says their ways and their deeds and their heart. We see in verse 10, there's a reference to the heart posture of forsaking the Lord. The last thing he says he's going to do is leave the sinful appetite of the people unsatisfied. We know only God is really (laughs) the thing that can satisfy us, right? But we've forgotten him. They've forgotten him. They've fallen in love with whoredom, wine, new wine, which take away the understanding. Now, what can we take away from all of this? Talk about the priests here at this beginning section. Human priests are always going to fail their people. Priests were meant to teach God's law, They were meant to offer the proper sacrifices to God, show the need for a mediator between God and man. And these priests fail miserably at that. But a greater priest has come, Jesus, our perfect high priest. And he offers one perfect sacrifice. I don't need to explain it because Hebrews 7 does it beautifully, so I'm going to repeat it to you. The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We talked about 1 Peter 2 last week, right? How we're no longer not my people, that we have a new status as God's chosen ones. And this applies here because in that passage, Peter calls us a royal priesthood. And what does he say that we're supposed to do in our roles as priests in the new covenant? He says we're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is a really beautiful way of saying We're called to tell our Jesus stories. We're called to talk about how excellent the God is who saved us. So are we taking that role seriously, or are we kind of doing what the priests were doing and not really thinking much of it? Let's learn from their example and choose a better way. Let's pick up in verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their god to play the whore they sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak poplar and terebinth because their shade is good therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery i will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let Judah not become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb and broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Now this last section is a just reminder. Why is this happening again? Like I said, we're bouncing kind of back and forth. God's reminding us that the people have forgotten God. So there's a couple of things to point out here. They've abandoned God for other sources of wisdom. They're asking pieces of wood for advice instead of the almighty creator God. They've abandoned God's temple, and they're sacrificing anywhere and everywhere but God's house. They've abandoned God's comfort. They're following after the comfort of creation and not the creator. They're out looking for good shade. And they've abandoned God for other husbands. God clarifies here, though, when he says daughters, he doesn't just mean women. Verse 14 says that the men are at fault as well. The men are engaging in cult prostitution when it is specifically forbidden. We see this in Deuteronomy 23, 17. It says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Now, I stop here because a friend of mine and I were talking the other week about Hosea, um, and she mentioned she was struggling with why God would choose to connect unfaithfulness with a woman, specifically. Like, why a woman and not a man? Is that the picture that God wants to paint of women when we know that men fail in this area as well? Well, it's certainly painful that Gomer, a woman, is the main picture of unfaithfulness in Hosea. But this verse confirms for us that God's not just condemning women kind. He's condemning all of the Israelites, male and female. All of them were guilty of unfaithfulness. So for anyone else out there who's had the same kind of question in mind, remember that many of the men in the Bible, even the ones we think of as the most upright, struggled with unfaithfulness and struggled with sin. So David, Noah, Abraham, Moses, none of them were perfect. They were not perfect in their faithfulness to God. Only Jesus has been. But back to the big point God is making. The people are coming to ruin. Why? Because they lack understanding. I hope you guys got this this week as you were reading. This is a big deal. They lack the knowledge of God. We talked a little bit about this last week. The knowledge of God is that intimate, experiential knowledge of him. They've been really busy chasing after Baal's approval and bending to the culture and asking wooden sticks for wisdom, and they're ignoring the Lord. What they really need is the wisdom and knowledge from God, and so do we. And one of the big questions that many of us have are like, how do I get wisdom from God? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? How do I grow in discernment? Let's crack open Proverbs, okay? Proverbs 2 is like my favorite, and I'm laying it down for you guys tonight. I'm reading Proverbs 2, starting verse 1. My son, listen closely. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as as for hidden treasures, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Lots of action words in there. Receive God's word. Treasure his law. Listen attentively. Turn your heart toward him. Ask for it boldly. Look for it. Pursue it. Then... Then you are going to find it. He says, you will find it. He will give it to you. He will give you wisdom. He wants you to know him. These are all active things that we can do. It doesn't say, like, wait for a sign from God in the clouds. (laughs) God gives us specific instructions here to go to his word, start searching. And we're guaranteed to find his wisdom. How could we not? It's his very words. And every word he speaks is trustworthy and true. I could go on all day on this one, you guys. But let's rein it in. The last part of the courtroom scene here, God gives some little tongue-in-cheek reminders. And he's closing with these words of warning. Um, As we go in, first, reminders. Judah is referring to the southern kingdom. Gilgal and beth those were centers for idol worship. And beth is kind of a play on words, referring to Bethel. Bethel means house of God, and beth means house of iniquity or nothingness or idols. And then Ephraim is another name for Israel. So first, God gives a warning for Israel about Judah. God's warning Israel not to spread their unfaithful practices to Judah in the south. So it says, don't go to Gilgal and beth these religious centers. They were in the northern kingdom, but they were actually really close to the southern border, so close to Judah. Now remember, these warnings were for Israel first, so it would have been infuriating for them to hear Judah mentioned. They would chafe against this idea that Judah needed to be kept away from them because they thought that Judah were the shameful ones. This would have really like, gotten under their skin. So God's kind of prodding at them here. He also warns them not to swear, using his name. And that swearing, the word swearing, both in the beginning and here, is another, it's a word more for oath. It's not like cursing, like we think of swearing. Um, It's like they would say, as the Lord lives at the end of something. Um, But that lost their meaning, and it was profaned in their culture. So that's his warning for Israel. And then he says to Judah, Israel's a stubborn cow. Israel is not going to move. They're not going to follow the Lord. They're not going to budge from their rebellion. And then he like, expresses his longing here. God's saying, I really want to be Israel's good shepherd and do the shepherding work, but they're not letting me. It's like he's saying, I wish I could feed them. I wish I could lead them and take them into a broad place and take care of them. But they're not coming. They won't come after me. And then he says, leave them alone. Leave Israel alone. They're joined to idols. They're busy getting drunk, being promiscuous, bringing shame on themselves, even though they don't recognize it. And God says, a wind's going to carry them off, and they'll eventually see their shame and sin. So this is God's whole first case against Israel. We'll, We'll see this kind of motif again later in Hosea. People are unfaithful. They have no knowledge of God. And the priests are responsible for leading them astray. No one's going to be excused. And Next, we're going to hear the details of God's verdict in chapter 5. I'm going to read the first seven verses here. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into the slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. This is harsh. This is sad. God's calling them, pay attention, listen, I'm talking to you. This judgment's for all of you, priests, people, kings, leaders, no one is exempt God's demanding their attention and he demands our attention too. Are we paying attention to God? Does his word have our attention? Or is he going to have to get our attention in more severe ways? This is the God of the universe talking and we would all do well to listen. So what does he say? He's repeating the evidence. Israel's leaders led them into a trap of idolatry and they couldn't get free. When he talks about Mitzvah and Tabor here, these were famous places in Israelite history. Basically what God's saying is that if any like regular hilltop or tree was a place for idol worship, how much more were people going to be worshiping at these famous places? Verse 2 says the rebels have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline them all. God is going to choose a verdict of discipline instead of complete destruction. He could wipe them out, but like a father, he chooses discipline instead. Again, we see God knows Israel, but they don't know him. He sees their sin. Amos says, For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. God knows and he sees. And so what does he say? He says they can't come back to him. They are unclean and they're defiled, so they can't be near God. Isaiah 59 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Being apart from God is the worst (laughs) Possible punishment. He also says their guilt will cause them to fall. Their pride testifies against them in this court hearing. They're going to fall. Judah will fall too. And this prophecy is the prediction of the future exile for both kingdoms. We see again everyone is affected by Israel's sin. The sin has spread. The sin has hurt other people. And this is especially crushing. They'll come looking for God, but they won't find him. They're going to bring their flocks and their herds. That's referring to their animals for sacrifice. They're going to bring their sacrifices to the Lord, but they're not going to find him. He's hidden himself from them because he can't be near their sin. He also says that their fields are going to be devoured because they've betrayed him and they've had illegitimate children this is talking about their intermarriage so God considers these children children of Baal and not children of Israel and the fields the new moon reference is probably a reference to the festivals or the sacrifices um, that were part of the Baal worship this is painful this is a painful verdict like I said separation from God that's the worst possible thing for humans We're designed to be with him. We desperately need him. And when he leaves, when he removes himself, we spiral out of control. So God sounds the alarm. He says, Blow the horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. So we move from the courtroom to the battlefield. God's calling the people to arms. The horn and trumpet are military signals to alert people. Get ready for battle. Go to your places. God says Judah's leaders are like those who move the landmark. And this is uh, referring to a sneaky way to get territory from another tribe illegally. Deuteronomy 19 says you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Everyone had a specific inheritance. Moving the landmark means you are saying that what God gave you was not enough. Judah was going to want to take advantage of Israel in their weakness, even though God just warned them to stay away from Israel. We hear God proclaim that Israel is going to be oppressed and crushed because of their focus on filthy, worthless things. And this is Deuteronomy 28, coming true. It says, A nation that you have not known, Assyria, shall eat up the fruit of your ground, And of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. Assyria is going to come and make this a reality for Israel. It's worth stopping here to me to ask, is there anything filthy or worthless that you are going after? Something that you think will give you comfort or make you whole? Maybe something you talked about in your group tonight, something that really Gives you no satisfaction. Is there a certain TV show that you watch, even though you know the content is questionable? Are you addicted to picking up your phone and checking social media to escape? Is there a habit that you know is unhealthy or worthless, but you continue to do it anyways? God calls us in Philippians 4, verse 8, to think on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely commendable excellent and worthy we know this you know this but habits are hard to break I certainly don't want to add strive to break blank habit to your Christian to-do list this week that's not what I'm trying to do but I want to remind you that this kind of living is possible in Christ we have the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in us to help us to run from these things and fix our eyes on the most worthy thing, God himself. He's the one who calls us to the hard and holy work of becoming like Jesus. But he never asks us to do it on our own. He never asks us to do it in our own strength. Because he knows for dang sure that we can't. I've got a lot of side sermons tonight, you guys. We're going to go back to the text again. So God's describing himself in a couple of metaphors for us here. He says it's going to be like a flood of water first. So he's bringing out that flood language, and this would have reminded the Israelites immediately of the flood story, Genesis 6 through 8-ish. And the reason, he said, he was flooding the earth then was because the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds familiar. He also says he's going to be like a devouring moth. Moths consume things; they are major agricultural and household pests. They devour crops. They devour garments. Last year, I kept finding these tiny holes in my clothes, and I assumed it was from a moth or another little pest. And I was like shaking my fists in the air in my closet and like talking out loud to them. But if you're wondering, that's what was happening. But one little itsy-bitsy hole ruined the whole garment. God's saying he's going to consume them. He is going to ruin them. He also says he's like rot, dry rot. Similar to a moth, um, dry rot eats away at things. It eats away at wood. Wood is useless when it's rotten and decaying. You can't do anything with it. He says he's going to be like a wound. A festering wound. Both of the kingdoms are described as having wounds in verse 13. It says that when the kingdoms see they're in trouble, that they are sick, they are going to go to Assyria first for help before they talk to God. But Assyria is not going to be able to fix their problems or heal them. Only God can heal them and save them. God is the one who gave them the wound. So he knows the exact prescription for healing. And they have to come to him to get it. And lastly, he says he's going to be like a vicious lion. And this is the first of two times that Hosea is going to describe God as a lion. Or God describe himself as a lion. God wants them to see him as a lion that is ripping his prey and carrying it away. Lions were really common predators in that time. People would have been familiar with what a lion attack was like. No one can save someone who's been ripped apart by a lion. So God's communicating that no one's going to be able to save them, Israel or Judah, from their fate. It will be sudden and it will be violent. This is all very violent language. So God's described himself here as vicious, predatory, unstoppable, overwhelming. And he says he's going to punish Israel and then leave. This is hard to read. It's hard to see God describe himself this way. But we're not done yet. I'm going to read verse 15 to you. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God says, I'm going to do this attacking this punishment, and then I'm going to go back to my place. I'm going to go back to my post, to my station. The battle is over. There's wreckage everywhere. Things are a mess, and everyone is in distress. And God says he's going to leave. He's going to stay in his place and wait until his people acknowledge their guilt and seek his face earnestly. So God is not going to move until they confess and turn, and repent. The ball is in their court. Their repentance is absolutely necessary for their restored relationship with God. They have to admit that they were wrong. They have to admit that they messed the whole thing up. And they have to turn toward him and confess all those things to him and look for restored relationship with him. And as it is with them, so it is with us. All that is required for us to have fellowship with God is for us to turn toward him, confess we've sinned and fallen short of his glory, and ask him to forgive us and restore us. Leviticus 26, uh, 40 to 42 says this. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. This is what, this is all building to God remembering, God keeping his promises to people who repent and turn to him and come back to him. And so, Here comes our beautiful call to return. Hosea is including himself here with all of Israel when he says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains, that water the earth. Could have done a whole, we could have done a whole night just on this, ladies. But let us walk through. First, God says, come. Hosea is calling Israel, move toward God. Accept his invitation. He says, let us. Us, not us not singular. This is a community call. This is not just an individual thing. It's something the whole community of Israel has to do together, just like they made all their covenants together as a nation. He's saying, come, everybody, all of you, together, return to me. Return. God hasn't forsaken them completely. He went away to his place, but he says, if you come back, You're always my special set-apart people. I will always receive you again. He says, come back. Come to your maker. Come to your first love. But why? Why should they go back to God who punished them? The God, the roaring lion, vicious, festering wound God. Why should they go back to that? He made life really hard for them, right? Why should we go back to God when he does things that are hard and puts us in hard places? Because God's ultimate purpose is to heal us, revive us, and give us life in his presence. He has a purpose to his punishment. There is purpose in his pruning. Yes, he is the judge. Yes, he is the one who punishment comes from. But he is also the healer and the restorer. He has to remove the dead things to give us the life. God always has the long game in mind. He's got the total picture that we don't have. We only get this little tiny peek of what he's doing. So when we perceive he's tearing us and disciplining us and taking us away from our lesser loves, sometimes really forcibly, he's doing so from a very different perspective than the one we have. So how do we get a little taste of his perspective? How do we know what he's seeing? How do we expand? Our view. If you have your Bibles with you, you can flip with me to Revelation 21. And I know many of y'all know this passage, but listen closely with me for what God is promising is coming. So Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So what promises do we see in here? God promises there's going to be a day where we will dwell with him. He will fully heal us, and he will take away all our pain, and he's going to make us brand new, and we can trust him. This is a guarantee because it says it's what? Already done. This is what we call eternal perspective, living with the end in mind. When we're experiencing that feeling of hurt, being hurt by God or disciplined by him or drowning in our circumstances, it is really hard to lift our eyes up and to remember this. But God knows this, and this is why he gives us so many reminders like this all over his word. We found one of many right here in Hosea. God is reminding us to look at the long game and to believe he's going to deliver on the promises that he's made to us. But I'm not saying this doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing or for endurance or for help from the Lord right now while we're here on earth. We absolutely do. He is not just the God of the ultimate forever healing. He is the God who can heal right now today. So we know he can heal. We know he can, but will he? Can we trust him to do that? When will the healing come? Hosea says, uh, 6-2, after two days, he will revive us. The healing here in this text is not immediate. There's a period of distress, a season of waiting. We talked about this last week when we talked about the wilderness. He gives us the promise of healing and restoration and revival, but we often have to spend some time waiting and learning to trust him before we get what we're longing for. We have to spend some time remembering that God himself is more precious than our deepest longing here on earth. But verse 2 says that healing does come. It will come. That's good news. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live. And not just live, but live before him. Why does he revive us? Why does he raise us up? Why didn't he just leave us? So we can live before his presence. He wants to be with us. Without God, we are dead. There has to be the death of the old self before we're able to come before him and be with him in his holy presence. And how can we not talk about Jesus here? You guys, we can't not. Jesus was raised on the third day to new life, and all of us are now able to do the same, to have new life and a new heart and live before God because of him. He makes it possible for us to have the relationship with a holy God, his perfect life, not ours. Tim Chester says, Jesus was torn that we might be healed. Jesus was struck down that we might be raised up. Jesus died the death we deserve so that we might live in God's presence. When God wounds you, no one can heal you, but there is one glorious exception. God himself can heal, and he heals you through his own wounds. So we're called to come and return to the God of ultimate healing and restoration. To receive new life in Jesus. Then what do we do when we have him? Verse 3. We press on to know him. We move forward toward deeper knowledge of him. This is no longer just about our salvation or our survival. This is about growing. Growing in our relationship with God. He doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. He saves us to something. Again, we see this is a community call. We press on to know him. He saves us into community. He saves us into a family, his family. This pressing on to know God, we do this together, and you are all here doing it right now. So take a minute, look at your sister on your right and your sister on your left. These are your people. These are the people God has placed around you to pursue him with. You are not alone. When we press in, we find that he is present. He is faithful. He is gentle. Like he talks about. Like like rain. Like spring rain. We can trust him. The word uh, for press on is... uh, radaph means to follow after, pursue, run after, chase, to try to secure. This is battle language, really. The word is used in other places when talking about pursuing an enemy. There's like a single-mindedness that's happening here. You've got your eye on the target, and you're not going to stop at anything until you get it. So what does that mean for us then to press on to know the Lord? It's not a passive thing that just happens to us. We don't just wake up. Every day, knowing God a little bit more, we're not like woken up, surprised, like, oh my goodness, I understand Leviticus 26. I didn't yesterday, now I do. Like, that's not, it's not happening. We have to go after it. It's just like our Proverbs 2 passage said earlier. There's something for us to do, to partner with God in this pursuit. So what one thing maybe could you do this week to chase after Jesus? Maybe it's making more time for study or prayer. Maybe meeting up with a neighbor you've been meaning to connect with or spending time in God's creation, practicing gratefulness, encouraging someone in the family of God, maybe reducing distractions so you can focus on him. Or maybe it's just to ask him to grow you in the belief that he is who he says he is, that he is your lover and your healer. Maybe that's that's it. And how can we then press on together? Not just on our own, but together. Maybe God's asking you to meet up with one of the ladies in your group. to talk about what you're learning about him. Or maybe he wants you to check in on a sister who you know is struggling this week. Maybe it's something completely different. I don't know. But what I do know is that he's worth it. He's worthy. This call that we get in, in Hosea is one that we have to heed our whole lives as Christians, to come to him, return to his love, seek him, find out who he really is, press on and press in together with the family of God, and then again, and then again, and then again. That's what our whole life must be centered on, Jesus himself, and getting closer and closer, and more like him, and following and pursuing, focusing our eyes on him. I want to close with how Paul puts it so beautifully. Because why say it another way if Paul has already said it? Philippians 3, 7-14. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let's pray. Grab your grab the hands of your sisters that you eyeballed just a little bit ago. Grab hands. We're doing this together. Don't be worried about it. Just do it. (laughs) Lord God, you are so worthy. We say tonight that we want to come. We want to come. We want to return to you. And sometimes we just don't know how. We just don't know what it looks like. We just don't think we can we don't make time for it, whatever it is, God. We know we're failing at it for sure. But you've sent Jesus. You've sent us your spirit. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness, you say. And so tonight we say we want to believe you in that. And in the places where we don't believe you, please help us. Please help us to consider our role as royal priestesses this week. God, um, what that looks like to be your ambassadors in our lives and to know the weight of influence that we have in the people around us. Help us to see with new eyes the community around us that you've given us. Show us ways that we can press on and press in to knowing you this week, to knowing you more, to spending time in your presence. God, you're worth it. You're so good to us. We don't deserve you coming back again for us, again and again. We deserve you to punish us and to never return. But you're so good. And you always come back for us. You always come back. So help us to come back to you. Jesus, Spirit, you are in us. And so you know what that is. You know what it is to come back, and so teach us to come back in a way that honors you and that shows the watching world how worthy you are. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, thanks for humoring me with the hand holding. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Session five, homework. Pray, 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 pray all the time. Praying... We need the prayer in these middle sections. We do. So your section this week is uh, 6-4 through seven sixteen. Continue making your notes, reading through. If you want to um, check out other translations again, go for it. Um, answer your discussion questions. The, the new tool this week is word study. Um, so all that means is you're just looking up the meaning of a word. In the English in, dictionary. Dictionary. Dictionary is great. Or in the original language is even better. Um, but start just start with one word. So we've given you one word in Hosea 6, 7, the word covenant. So we're asking you to look that up, see what it means, and see what it can help to uncover for you in your studies this week. I really like the Blue Letter Bible app, my little plug for how I do word study. Um, you can go in, you can press any verse, and you press, like, inner, I think it says... Concordance. If you want to see it, I'll show it to you. And then it brings up all the words in the original language in your verse. And you just press that one and then you see what it means and then you see all the places where it's ever been in the Bible. And so it gives you kind of a fullness. And you can just do it right here on your phone while you have the other thing out. Super convenient. The the old style concordance is like next level. I can't I can't do all the flipping. But the phone. That phone helps me. So if you want to see that afterwards, come let me know. I will give you a little tutorial. But I will say that's, like, the one thing that has really... This is the one tool that really changed the game for me, um, looking up what the words really mean, because I found I just had a lot of ideas in my head of what words meant based on our English and our culture and all of that. And so checking out what the Greek words means usually just, like, blows my brains out. So... <laughs> Just get ready for that this week, you guys. Just that little brain-blowing emoji is what is going to happen this week. Anyways, so homework time is going to be super fun. So if you, if you get your brain blown this week, share it on Instagram. Put that emoji, and I'm going to love it so much, and I'm going to be cheering you on. In Jesus' name, it's going to be a good week. Thank you, ladies.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's Word, visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com, on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in His Word today, sister.